0: I'm reading from (laughs) Ephesians, well, I'm reading from this book in the Bible, (laughs) Um, starting with uh, verse 3 and going through verse 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places just as he chose us in Christ, before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we who were the first to set our hope on Christ might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Our second reading is taken from 2 Samuel. We have been traveling with Saul and David to watch the rise of David into establishing the Davidic monarchy and line from which Jesus will eventually come. But it's been a great set of stories, and we continue today in 2 Samuel. If you remember thus far, we started with King Saul, the first king. The people cried out they wanted a king, and Saul was well for a while. At the same time, you have this shepherd boy, Same parallel track going on at the same time. Uh, Saul makes a mistake and does not wipe out all of the Amalekites as God expressly told him to do. From that point on, God's Spirit left him and was with David. And we remember um, when David was anointed, he was the eighth of seven brothers tending the sheep. Nope, 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 nope. Where is this everybody? Nope, where's David? David, little shepherd boy, the punk? Yeah, go get him. He's the one. Then uh, you have uh, David and Goliath, uh, that familiar story. Um, We continue on with Saul's demise and David's rise. Although David was anointed, Saul was still king. So Saul becomes more and more paranoid. David becomes more and more established. We talked last week about the relationship between Saul's son Jonathan and David—a special and close relationship. They seem to be both friends and uh, brothers in arms as they served together. Um, we talked about the way that David would continue to try to, to to calm Saul as he continued to have evil spirits in his head. Uh, Saul tried to kill David a few times, and we continue on and on. Um, Saul and Jonathan have just been killed with, from the Philistines. You remember, uh, Goliath was from the Philistines. They didn't wipe him out. They're still fighting. And so Saul and Jonathan both die. David then becomes the king. There is a time of mourning. He expresses his uh, grief and anxiety over the loss of Jonathan and becomes king. And so now we begin Second Samuel. First Samuel ends with the death of Saul and Jonathan, and we jump right into Second Samuel. So listen today as we continue on. We are Second Samuel six verses one through five, then we'll jump to twelve through nineteen. Second Samuel six, one through five. Listen. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. David and all the people with him set out and went from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name the Lord of hosts who was enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill." Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went in front of the ark. David and all the house of Israel were dancing before the Lord with all their might, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. It was then told to King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of God. So David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who bore the Ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. David danced before the Lord with all his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the Ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David, her husband, leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord, set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and offerings of well-being before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the offerings of well-being, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed food among all the people. The whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, to each a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins. Then all the people went back to their homes." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. So, here we have David, and a focus of this is this dance. Why in the world, and what is going on with this weird dance that David does? Well, if we look at dancing in general as a part of human development, we can first start to see that dancing has been a part of humanity as long as we can go and track it. There's a 9,000 year old cave in India and it has depictions of people dancing as a part of their ritual, as a part of their worship, as a part of their celebrations. Dancing takes many forms, many shapes, many feels. Some dancing is appropriate, some dancing is not appropriate. Some dancing inspires us, some dancing is skillful and is a practiced art. And sometimes we just dance because we like to and it makes us feel good. If we look in our own country's development, we start Let's take a quick journey. In the 1920s, uh, you can raise your hand if uh, you were uh, participating in these particular dances. In the 1920s, we start early with the Shimmy and the Charleston. Later that decade, you have the tango and then the waltz. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Anybody, 1920s? It's okay, it's all right. Then into the 30s and 40s, you have the rise of jazz and swing dance. You have things like the Jitterbug and the Lindy Hop. Are we are getting closer? Anybody, anybody? Nobody's willing to admit. Okay, all right. So now we're into the 50s. Into the 50s with that devil rebellious rock and roll and the dances that came. Things like Chubby Checker's Twist. You have the hand jive. You have the bop. You have all those things. You have that great leader of this rebellion, Elvis Presley. September 9th, 1956, Ed Sullivan, first time tonight on the big shoe. We have Elvis Presley, only from the waist up because he's obscene. Here he is. From the waist up only why because his dancing was viewed at that time to be inappropriate for general consumption and the great songs that came out of the 50s that led to so many great dances in the 50s we getting warmer anybody sock hops go ahead come on All right, thank you, thank you. Into the 60s, where this just explosion of expression in a variety of ways, some good, and some not so good. You have over 400 dances introduced through the 60s. Things like the mashed potato, the fly, the monkey, the funky chicken, and so on and so forth. Into the 70s, we only need to say one word, what is it? Disco disco right a whole generation we still do some of that dancing There's things like the hustle even YMCA back in the day we still continue to do all that John Travolta early pioneer this is the universal sign for disco <laughs> came from John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever Remember him at the dinner table and his Italian family and they're all, he's getting ready to go out. He's got a little bib over, napkin over his shirt because he's all disco'd up, ready to go. And his dad smacks him in the back of the, don't touch my hair. Don't touch my hair. Into the 80s. Now we're into break dancing. Mm-hmm. Woo-hoo-hoo. Look at that. And street dancing becomes more of a thing with this new kind of break dancing style. Into the 90s, you have those like Britney Spears and Beyonce who make dancing a part of their vocal music. They are vocalists first, but dancing is so much a part of who they are and inspire other dances. Into the 2000s, where you have more rise of hip hop, other forms of line dancing, to where we continue to take little pieces of all of that to make new things moving forward. I've done a sermon since I've been here about the power of music that associates us with different times and places and people in our lives. Dances are right there with it. When you hear the music and you see the dancing, you, you know generally, and the clothes too, got to have the clothes, you know what era you are in and you know where you were if you were in that era, all the way from Gene Kelly and singing in the rain, musicals, Saturday Night Fever, all the way up until Footloose in the 80s. Remember Kevin Bacon in that movie? Big Chicago City Boy comes to little country town where the preacher has gotten the city to make dancing and rock and roll illegal. And so the fight To Dance continues, yes, awesome movie. You have Dirty Dancing, Patrick Swayze, made in the 80s but reflective of the 50s, going back into that time and that Dirty Dancing portion of that music. And, of course, the line, nobody puts baby in a corner. Well done. Music captivates us. Dance captivates us. And again, for a variety of reasons, uh, of, of opportunities, it can be worshipful. It's not necessarily our tradition, but for many, moving and movement is a part of their celebration and praise of God. It is ritualistic, it is symbolic, and it can be just fun. You can do it with partners, you can do it with other people, and you can do it by yourself, again, generally in clusters. Dancing can have a healing component. One of my friend, our friend and mentors, Glenn Bannerman, was a professor at our graduate school in recreation and he specialized in healing dance. What? He would do things like go to Northern Ireland and he would get Protestants and Catholics together through Appalachian Circle Mountain Dancing to get them to realize that as they're trying to figure out how to, who to promenade and who's going to swing, and who they're touching, they're interacting in a safe way with these people that they've been taught to kill, blow up, and that are subhuman. At our rehearsal dinner in Pensacola, Florida, we had this friend of ours, Glenn, come down, and one of the things that he did as a part of his dance ministry, he started, started that music and then had me go to Vicky's. and my wife and kids are here today, uh, I keep pointing that way, that's why. I went to Vicky's mom and got her up, she went to my dad, got him up. And then we would continue, those two would go and grab others from both of the families until everybody from both sides of the family was gathered, all mixed up in one big circle with that symbol that now we are one new family and we are starting in this united way. So again, dancing can be used in a variety of ways. It can be faithful and it can be not so faithful. It can be harmful, just like any other form of expression like any art form. Some we see and we like, and some we look at and say, oh no. But today, in this story, it is David, the king, who is dancing darn near naked. Not naked. Naked is when you're up to something, and David is definitely up to something. So he had been out fighting the Philistines, The ark had been taken by the Philistines but recovered and had been in this home sitting there. Why? Because they were afraid of it. They were afraid of it because they knew God dwelt within it. Well, gosh, that'd be great. I'd love to have the power. I'd love to have God present. And, well, think about that a little bit. The ark symbolized God's law. We think the original Ten Commandments were in it, but wherever... The ark was is where God was. There was no temple yet. There was the tabernacle, the traveling tent, as they would go from place to place. So wherever God the the ark was is where God was. It was very powerful, but that power also scared them. We can understand that, right? One day I look forward to standing toe to toe to Christ, but I'm also terrified at the same time. He loves me, but He is God. And that's a little overwhelming. So they kind of kept it hidden for a while. So David, after his victories, now clear with Saul and Jonathan and several of other Saul's sons killed in that battle that I mentioned before, David has grieved. David has gone to enact vengeance on the Philistines, finally wiped them out, and he goes and gets the ark and comes to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Jerusalem that had continued to be occupied by other forces in their Middle Eastern neighborhood. Today, David comes in in this procession with the ark. It is masterful, it is religious, it is political, and it is smart. So David comes in in this big procession, and it says all of Israel is there with him. And he comes in in this kind of parade environment with the ark as a victor, as a military conqueror and hero, again, as David has continued to do. And this action establishes Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, unites the families and clans, the tribes Shortly after, he names it the city of David. And then it is also the city of God. This is a big, pivotal moment in the history of the Jewish people in Israel and our history as those who will evolve out of that tradition. So David comes in, such the conquering hero, not even those who are against him. And of course, there would have had to have been people who were vying for the throne in some other ways. There had to have been some strains of those who did not support him or thought he was not worthy or what have you. Why? Because we're people, that's what we do. But in that moment, even they could not contend with the force of David coming in with the ark, saying that God is with me, and now this is God's city, and I am the conquering hero, I am king, Tough. for the conservatives of the day he brought the ark that is focused in their orthodox worship of god for the liberals of the day this was a new way forward where the fighting would stop they were unified and moving together and reconciled as one people and it said they were all dancing and singing with him So even in that day, you had both Rachel Maddow and Rush Limbaugh all dancing together with David. All sides funneled into one, and nobody could beat David on that day. So what's this dancing part about? Well, dancing more a part of the worship of that day. More accepted, more practiced as a part of that culture. But this was something different. Why? This ephod thing, what in the world is going on? What is an ephod? Biblical undies? No, different. An ephod is used by the priests for religious rituals. It would, it's almost like a smock or an apron that would put on that covers some, but wasn't meant to be worn alone open on the side, may even have that cool hospital gown thing in the back. But it was made to go underneath the breastplate of the priests as they would enter into worship and ritual, which is really interesting because David does several things in this passage that only priests do, and he's not a priest. He's not from the house of Levi, who were the priests. He offers offerings to God several times throughout this passage, He makes atonement for them. Only priests do that, but David's doing it. I'm telling you, this is one of David's best days. Nobody can stop this guy today. So he's wearing the ephod, but he's not wearing the rest of the priestly garments. So again, in trying to blend the political and the religious, David is wearing a priestly garment, an ephod, to signify that this is also A holy event that you're participating in and that God is with him he continued to offer to God all the way through to give him the glory first and foremost so that everyone knew that God was with him but he could have been close to naked and Michael his wife who was Saul's daughter She's watching from the window. She must have been up there saying, "Oh, they're they're coming back. Here they come! Woo! There's what it, what, what is it? Who is David? Embarrassed, shocked, and she says specifically when David catches up with her at the end of our." Uh, In a few few verses later, she kind of mocks him and says how reverent and honorable the king was today in exposing himself to the servant girls and everyone else, which was her chief concern. And she's right. That wasn't done. Remember, she's a royal. She was Saul's daughter. She's grown up sometime in the palace. She knows the etiquette, and this wasn't it. And David responds and says first to her your claim, the claim of Saul on the house of Israel is now over. Don't even think that because your dad was Saul or anybody else exists from Saul's lineage that anybody but me is now taking the throne. And then it said from that day forward she had no children and he didn't kill her. She didn't go away. She was just kind of there in the background, almost as if she had been shunned within the palace. And for David not to have a child, and this was his first wife among many and many and many, but his first wife. It was pretty serious. So he shut her down from that day forward, and it says she died bearing no heirs. So that resentment to look down and see David doing his thing, we have the sense of David kind of being lost in it all in the moment. Think of the crowds cheering. I imagine some who were even dancing and singing in in support probably said to themselves, as I heard one pastor lift up, what kind of king is this? What kind of king is this that comes in barely dressed and dances in front of everyone? He should have come in on his stallion. He should have come in as the conquering hero he was with the military show of might and force and strength. But he didn't. I'm sure several, along with Michael, mocked him and said, What kind of king are you? And if this sounds reminiscent, yes, I believe it is. When else do we see in the New Testament when someone asks, what kind of king is this? This carpenter who comes into Jerusalem riding a donkey? Are you kidding me? Hosanna in the highest, palm leaves down. A similar per- procession into Jerusalem. And similarly, those saying, Why isn't he coming as a conquering hero? We got to wipe these Romans out, get rid of them. That's why we're supporting him as Messiah. 33 BC or 33 AD. Very similar to David. He's doing things unconventionally. God is clearly with him. He's causing others to look around and to say, what is going on here? This is a little bit different. What kind of king will he be? And again, right now, David cannot be beat. The palace intrigue will continue as we develop into David's story, see some of that family infighting, some of the politics, all that. It'll come. But for now, David is so overwhelmed that he dances with joy with all of Israel, not by himself. And so my simple question in the understanding of all of that is when was the last time we had that kind of joy about our walk with Christ? When was the last time that we were able to celebrate, smile, lose ourselves in the worship of God, And I hope there have been some of those moments. Some of those would happen here, but some would happen outside as well. That's where some of those traditions that move around a little more and have that as a part of their worship have a little more on us. As Presbyterians, traditionally, we're kind of tightly wound. We kind of don't want to move. We don't want any attention drawn to us. But we're, we've got the game going in here. We are thoughtful. We are focused on learning and working this out in our hearts and minds, and that is strength. But where to find that joy and not be afraid of what others will say about you? There's always going to be a Michael who's watching from the window who says, you are ridiculous, You are terrible at what you do. I despise you in my heart. I hope that is minimal, but of course it's going to happen. That's the world we live in. And our response is not to say, well, I hate you too. I despise you too in my heart. Let's just call this even. It is to say, you know what? God loves me. God has called me. God has empowered me with the gifts that I believe I am using. Thank you for your feedback. We can get lost in this. Well, somebody disrespected me, so I have to disres- then it's okay for me to I have to go back and disrespect them two times the way they disrespected me. It's killing us. It is literally killing us. We have to be able to see the bigger picture. You don't write somebody off. It's not about having thick skin because what happens when you thicken up that skin? Let's say you're a shark. Let's say your skin is Kevlar. You are bulletproof. Nothing can harm you. What happens? Then you stop taking anybody's feedback because you are invincible and you don't care what anybody says. I think that swings too far the other way. I think our goal is is to listen to the response and feedback of others and see even if it's wrapped in disgust, even if it's wrapped in Michael's disdain, what is she concerned about? Is there something in there that would help me? Yes, it was done in a way that is offensive to me, but what is she afraid of? Well, she she's, wants to preserve the monarchy. She wants David to be seen as somebody respected. Well, that, that's not awful. That's not horrible. But it's, it was just wrapped in that negative shell. We have to be able to interact with folks who come at us and say, I despise you in my heart. Well, thank you. It's hard. I know it. It's ridiculous. But again, this idea of being disrespected, we have to rise above it. If you were disrespected, well, take it. Okay. How can you show your Christian love and step up and be better than that? That's what we need to practice. And it's hard. I know it. I know it. Somebody comes at you, they're at you. Kicks off all of our personal defenses and we can't think so clearly anymore. I know it. But God loves them. They have a story. They have hopes and dreams and fears. And they're trying to express in a way that may not be helpful maybe something you can learn from, maybe not. But we have to stop writing off people because we think that they don't like us or our kind or our philosophy or our theology or our politics. It's killing us, killing us. So discovering the joy or rediscovering the joy in our Christian journey That sounds great. Don't you want that kind of joy? I think we all do. We want to revel like David did. Maybe not dance in the same way that he did. Maybe for us, that dance comes with sitting down with relatives. Maybe that is in our worship. Maybe that is in the way that we serve others. Maybe that is in a conversation with somebody who is in need. So many ways that we can seek to claim or reclaim. To discover or rediscover the joy. And there will be times later on that we'll get to that David does not feel the joy of the Lord. But here it is. Nor can we sustain that kind of celebration. But our call is joy. What can you do in your life? Maybe it is dancing. Maybe you're not a dancer and that's okay too. What other ways help you discover or rediscover the joy in Christ? Come talk to us. It's why the staff is here. We seek to do this together. Many times being together is more helpful than trying on our own. Come on, let's do this together and discover the joy as a congregation again together. And let us dance before the Lord, open, vulnerable, excited, and passionate. Hallelujah. Amen.